There is this deep need among the journalistic class to be both the vanguard and the mainstream. And it doesn't line up. It, it doesn't add up. It, it, it can't hold together. Either you are radical and really pushing the boundaries of the culture and freaking out the squares or you're making all the squares happy. It's just it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And yet there's this odd need. And I don't think it's just the journalistic set. I think it's a lot of people. I think people on the right certainly want to have the silent majority on their side. But there's this weird there's this weird need to be both the underdog and the overdog all at once. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Ethan Strauss. He is a sports journalist. Now, we don't talk a lot about sports around here, mostly because I do not follow sports, but I am nonetheless a fan of Ethan's and of his Substack, House of Strauss. His work there, which includes articles and essays as well as a podcast, covers not just sports itself, but the cultural and even political forces that surround our human fascination and devotion to sports. In his own words, he puts it this way, sports happen to comprise one of the few spheres in American life where millions of people from different backgrounds share real-time experiences. In the recent, that's post-1960s, past, sports served as a place for the nation and its cities to bond over passions that were mostly walled off from the surrounding world. Within the last decade, those walls were breached. The world is now pouring into the arena and pulling back contents that were once safe in those bastions. We are in a new turbulent era. And he adds, lately, sports media has gone insane. So in this conversation, we talk about what Ethan means by that turbulence, why the media surrounding professional sports seems so out of step with actual interests and concerns of fans, and why, more broadly, media professionals in general are so determined to see themselves as outsiders when they are the ultimate insiders. We talk about what it was like for him covering the Golden State Warriors and how he got his start at the publication Salon of all places. You may have heard him talking on other podcasts, including his own, I believe, with writer and former Salon editor Sarah Heppola, who's been on this podcast many times. For paying subscribers here, Ethan stays overtime and talks about his feelings about his age and also a post he did last spring called All Hail the Model, which was about how to really succeed on Substack. That post made me very anxious and we talk about why. Uh, he does not let me off the hook, even though I was supposed to be the one asking the questions. So to hear that part, become a paying subscriber at megandome.substack.com. And in the meantime, here is my conversation with Ethan Strauss. Ethan Strauss, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You're probably wondering what you're doing here. I do not follow sports at all, but I have heard you on various podcasts and also heard you do interviews on your own podcast with a lot of people, including some of my friends, people like Sarah Heppola and Kat Rosenfield. And you've always just struck me as a very solid, respectful, thoughtful, without being precious or neurotic kind of guy. So mm. I wanted to have you on. No, well, no pressure I, or anything. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. And I like going into this, not having any idea what we're going to talk about. And it's intriguing to me. And, you know, like so many people, 
I so often want to talk about things outside of my work and outside of my purview. And that's part of why I quit my job at The Athletic covering the NBA to just have my own Substack. is that I want to have conversations. I don't want to go to I don't want to go to a party. They're well-meaning, nice people, and they want to know who's going to win the NBA championship. And I, I don't know any more than anybody else knows about it. So I'm very, I'm <laughs> delighted to have it. I can't. It's not, it's not a power they give you along with the credential uh, when you join up. Though, I mean, there's a lot to say about that whole industry and how it's a different, it's a different type of media than the type of media that you're involved in. And the type of media a lot of the political media is involved in. And I do feel like an interloper sometimes, Megan, in this world, because oh. I, I come I come from elsewhere. So I I feel a little bit orthogonal to it all sometimes. Orthogonal. Okay. Is that like having to do with having a retainer or something? Do you have like <laughs> braces? What do you mean? I don't know such big words. <laughs> I don't I, I'm not even sure I could define that off the top of my head other than just someone who doesn't totally someone who doesn't totally fit isn't coming at it from an obvious angle. And that's that's how I feel. But there are some things I totally overlap on and get me cast as part of the anti-woke sub stackerati. So I'm kind of there and I'm kind of not there. Maybe I'm more liminal. Who knows? Yeah. So, God, liminal, orthogonal. Look at you. So you write about the the intersection, to use another horrible word. Why don't we just get them all <laughs> out of the way, um, between sports and, and politics and culture. And I've been really interested in what you've been talking about over the last few years in terms of the way sports marketing is influenced by this kind of, I would characterize it as sort of hollow, performative wokeness. So I, I want to talk about that a, a little bit. And I also want to talk about um, just your life on on Substack. Um, I have to say that several actually of the women in my community recommended you as a guest. They they requested you mm. in my in my unspeakeasy community, and um, partly because they were interested in the the piece that you've recently written, just about the Substack model, and it's called "All Hail the Model." And uh, I want to talk about that more, maybe in a little bit here. But but let's actually start. You know, you were an editor at Salon, were you not? Like very early in your career, editor is putting it very generously. On the weekends, I was a I was a weekend editor, which I think allowed me to pump up my resume in my early to mid twenties, um, whenever that was, and say editor. But it's not like it's not like I was doing what Sarah Heppel was doing and getting people's pieces and really focusing on them and wrestling with them. I just was moving headlines around the site on the weekend, where I think my job. I can't even remember all the technical terminology, but it was to take AP headlines and maybe we had paid some sort of service and we would then rewrite the headline to make it more interesting, which was good practice in a way. It was almost, uh, maybe it was good practice for Twitter or just trying to get a little bit more focused, more succinct. But that was that was a lot of what I was doing on the weekends. And I, I was kind of a utility man. You know, something happened, something horrific happened, the Gabby Gifford shooting, then I would be live blogging and aggregating. And uh, it all ended with, um, I got promoted to a full-time position. And at the same time, I was going to Golden State Warriors games and uh, doing it for the Warriors World blog. And it seemed like there was a decision before me where I was going to choose salon.com 
or choose the sports path. And uh, I quit two weeks in the salon, uh, salon.com gig. And I, I went. <laughs> that you've regretted that ever to- since. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've taken off like a rocket ship. I mean, I've wanted to maybe write about what was it back then? Because there have been people, Wesley Yang, for instance, who has said that all of the media eventually became like salon.com, that the way salon made that real hard turn into identitarian clickbait, presaged everything else. But I've talked about it a bit with, with Sarah a bit where I don't know if we were aware that there was any sort of thing happening, right? It just seemed no. like the ship, it just seemed like the ship was sinking. <laughs> and it was, uh, I mean, I know I'm rambling about this, but you're getting me nostalgic and getting me thinking about it. But one of my main memories of it, there was a San Francisco office that I was working in and I started as an intern and there have been so many layoffs that it was half empty, but a very nice space. So you almost felt like a kid playing dress up in an episode of <laughs> right. Mad Men because right. I would just commandeer a corner office for myself on occasion uh, and have all the trappings of an office and all the space I could ever want. But there was a clear scent of death in the air and I knew it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, so I'm trying to think. So Gabby Giffords, was that like 2010 around around there? Sounds about right. Okay. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Okay, so you would have been there. Okay, so you would have been there around like 2010, 2011 or so. I think that that still was a pretty decent time at Salon. I mean, I talk about being nostalgic. Salon was really great for yeah. a period of time. And I was actually thinking about this uh, this morning, like literally in the shower, I was thinking like, God, Jezebel used to be so great. Yeah. I mean, Gawker was great. Jezebel was like truly kind of transgressive in, in the best possible way when it started. I mean, Anna Holmes was a brilliant editor. So like, first of all, like was Salon your first job? How, what had you been doing up until that point? So I graduated from college in 2008. And I did the very cliche thing of moving to New York City with my best friend because that just seemed very exciting. And I didn't have much of a plan, but there was a job with the NBA. Friend of a friend told me about it. And I thought, oh, I like the NBA. I like basketball. And so I I applied and I got the job. It was in this Orwellian sounding department called Media Monitoring. The, The NBA as an institution is especially vigilant about media coverage. And I think it all kind of comes from the top. Back then, they were run by David Stern, who was famously this brilliant tyrant who would obsess over everything and would yell at reporters. And so my job was to wake up at around 3 a.m. every day and read the entirety of everything about the NBA on the internet, which you could do back then. That was actually possible. It was a lot, but you could literally read everything written about the NBA on the internet on a day in 2008. And then I would send a memo to David Stern and everybody else on, on who to kill uh, or who had, you know, who had rankled them in some capacity. And it was seven days a week. The only way it was legal is that it was technically 39 hours a week because otherwise you can't force people to work seven days a week if it's full time. And it was uh, totally miserable. I was going to try to go out and, and be a young person. And I always fell asleep. I have multiple times I fell asleep on the end train and I woke up in Coney Island oh, um, yeah. in the winter because that's where the that's where the line stops because I just thought I could push myself oh, yeah. and 
The outdoor really stop on top of yeah, everything else, right? Yeah, you know, you know, uh, yeah. you get it. Those are the um, key, key ones to avoid. <laughs> so about a nearly a year into it, I decided I could not do it anymore. That the New York phrase, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But I, I couldn't make it there. <laughs> I had to try my options elsewhere. I was miserable. I had had some insights into how media works, and I was intrigued by beat writing, where you follow a team around and go to the games for free, and that seemed pretty cool. But I was living a very solitary existence. It was depressing. My roommate, he was dating his eventual wife, and he would go to Philadelphia every other weekend to see her, and I was just by myself. I didn't really have the capacity to date, as crazy as that sounds, because it was this seven-day-a-week thing. Yeah. And, you know, How do you even meet people when you're falling asleep at 7 p.m., 8 p.m. every night. So I needed to get out of it. And I mean, there's a short story here and there's a long story here, but I did get out of it. I quit. I moved back to the Bay Area with my college friends uh, in an apartment slash house and in Oakland. And I applied to Salon because it seemed cool. And they had an office in San Francisco. And boom, that's how that started. So were you aware at the time of Salon being a place with like, you know, genuinely interesting and sophisticated ideas flying yeah. around? Like, were you excited oh, about being yes. in the media mix? Oh, yeah. 100%. I knew about King Kaufman and I knew he did some sports stuff and that was cool, too. And uh, yeah, I I was intrigued by a lot of what was going on and how... Uh, Tracy Clark Flory would write about sex and weird taboo issues. And I don't know if I, you know, had a real firm idea of everything happening at Salon, but it was a name that I associated with cool journalism and a place where maybe I could carve out some kind of niche. And then I show up and as Ben Smith was saying in his book, and uh, it, that that sense that the party just ended, like everywhere he went, he felt like the media party had just concluded. That's how I felt. I, I show up there. I'm in San Francisco. I feel like I'm in the big city. I feel like I'm Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, I go in there and I look around and the, it's this massive, you know, this massive office floor. And it's, it's half empty <laughs> because everyone's getting fired. Right, right. Had you aspired to be like a sports journalist of this sort of old magazine style? I mean, there's so many legendary sports writers that were writing for like Esquire and Rolling Stone and GQ and those kinds of magazines. Was it, were you sort of, did you kind of miss all of that, at least in your imagination? I don't know if I aspired to it, but I definitely read them. This is going to make me sound pretty old, but it was so exciting. Not, not for me compared back. to me, not when you're here. So <laughs> just feel well, free. <laughs> it was so exciting. The most exciting thing to me back in high school was when the mail would arrive and I would get either a Rolling Stone, a New Yorker, or a Sports Illustrated. And I was just addicted to reading articles. I I love nonfiction. I loved, you know, articles of that era, the quality was very high too. You know, there, these things were uh, were still profitable, and so I would just voraciously consume all of that stuff. And I think that was maybe ever since middle school I was doing that. And when I started to drive, I would have them in the passenger seat of the car, and I, I needed them by my side at all times. So I definitely had an obsessive following with it all. I didn't have any sort of plan or sort of. Um, I am going to end up here. There, there was nothing like that. It was more, 
well, I'm kind of a, an unemployed bum. You know, the part I didn't mention is I go to New York, I take this job, and the economy falls apart in 2009. When I got back to Oakland, I was looking for any kind of work because the financial crash had happened, and I couldn't find it. I tried to bag groceries, but there are other people who've been fired from jobs who had already been able to uh, establish some experience bagging groceries. So, you know, all I really had is an option. You know, it's this kind of funny thing that happens sometimes where bad things lead to good things. Uh, was it the upside of down that, that Megan McCurdle uh, calls it? Is that how you pronounce her name? Oh, I, Megan I apologize. McCardle. McCardle. Ma- Ma- yeah, Megan McCardle. Megan I apologize. Orthogonal. <laughs> Megan orthogonal. Megan liminal. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like I would have just ended up in a regular office job and had a pretty conventional life if there was any work available in the year 2009. I think oh. that's probably what it would that's probably what would have happened to me. Like not even writing, not journalism, just No, like, I I just was looking for a foothold. I was just looking yeah. for something. I was broke. I was living in a walkthrough. Uh you know, we were in this I, I called it an apartment, but it was really a house and I was in this walkthrough room, $400 a month, and that was about all I had and I just was looking for something. So if there was a conventional path available, I think I would have gotten on that train, but there wasn't. So I was blogging about the Golden State Warriors in my spare time and applying for internships at literary publications. Okay. And so um, at a certain point, you go to work for The Athletic. So tell us what that is all about or was. Okay. So to back up a bit, um, to just speed run my career, it sounds so pretentious when you say your career, I quit Salon. I blog about the Warriors. ESPN notices some of the stuff I'm doing over there. I briefly take a job with Bleacher Report, work for ESPN, uh, because ESPN says, we'll hire you instead. Uh, Cover the Warriors as they're winning these championships, and they're like the Beatles for a little while. Uh, Then I get fired from ESPN in 2017 in something of a political coup. Then I'm getting paid by ESPN basically not to work. And The Athletic comes a knock in, and they are a startup, effectively, trying to take the old beat writing that was going away because newspapers were falling apart, but be smarter and savvier about it and have a subscription model. And this is a very new thing at that particular time, and a scary thing to a lot of writers, because you see all your stats. Now you're used to this on Substack and whatnot, but that was a big adjustment for people, and it could make them a little crazy. But I joined, and I was fortunate to. And I think I had tremendous luck because my colleagues, they were friends, and they were great at what they did. Uh, We were all covering the Warriors together. Marcus Thompson, Tim Kawakami, uh, our boss at the time, and Anthony Slater. And I felt like we just had a magical run uh, right up until the pandemic where it all kind of screeched to a halt. Yeah. So when did you start writing or even thinking about just the way that the sports world has responded to the kind of social justice culture that has permeated everything? I mean, it is pretty remarkable the way that the disconnect between the audience for sports, for professional sports, and whoever is working in these ad agencies coming up with these woke campaigns. So is that something that you had noticed like for a while before you started writing about it or did you just kind of stumble into this? Yeah, I think I'm always sensitive to incongruities and when things don't totally add up with the image. And I was already starting to notice 
because when you're a beat writer, your job is to follow the team around the country and you're in the locker room before the game, you're in the locker room after the game. And so you do get a sense of the culture. And, you know, I'm not judging the culture. I, I was always just intrigued. It was a very, very different world from working at salon.com. It's very high T. It's ruthless. It's vicious. It's a Darwinian crucible to be an NBA player. They are fighting over hundreds of millions of dollars out there in a form of barely sublimated physical co uh, combat. And uh, they relish the humiliation of their opponent. They like being cruel about it. I think at the beginning of my book, I talk about how there was this player, Justin Holiday, who was kind of a bit on the fringes and trying to make the league. And there was a more established player, Andre Godala, who was a veteran and he was secure in his role. And after three games in which Justin couldn't hit a shot, I saw a commotion. And it was because Andre Iguodala had moved a bunch of his shit into the neighboring locker, which was Justin's, basically saying, "Well, you're not going to be around here much longer, so I'm just going to use your, I'm just going to use your space," you know. And uh, that's that's what it's like. And it's also there's a lot of bonding and there's a lot of joy and everything else. But I would look at that kind of culture. And also the things that were said and, and everything else. And there was an incongruity between what was happening there and Blue America's favorite sport, the NBA, which a lot of, you know, if you go on Twitter and you look at a lot of journalists, a lot of journalists are big NBA fans. And there was something funny to me about this almost disconnect between the actual culture that was creating the product and a lot of the young professionals who consume the product and who might want to project onto these guys that these guys are exactly like the roommate at Yale. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, wait, why? I never thought of this. Why is it that like the sort of elite media classes have basketball as their preferred sport? Is it just like, like an urban thing? Like they're just, it's a city game. Yeah, I think there's a lot. There's a lot to it. A, it's a great sport, so they're not wrong to love it. So that's number one. And I think number two, it maybe it's more progressive to like a very individualistic black sport than to like the militaristic gridiron sport. I mean, people have seen the George Carlin juxtaposition between football and baseball, and basketball is free flowing and it's cool, and it's always been the coolest sport. And what do journalists not have in great supply? It, it's cool. It's being cool. <laughs> so it, it seems like a natural thing to gravitate to. But then it creates just this funny, you know, this funny dynamic where they're often projecting upon these guys in this parasocial relationship, as opposed to having any, any understanding of what their culture is like. And then the funny thing that happens is that the players aren't stupid. And they know it gets them the applause and they know it gets them the media coverage that's more favorable. And so they start cupping their ear and they start playing to it, regardless of what the conversations are, you know, behind the scenes and what these guys are really saying about gay people and whatever. You could, right. you could, you could throw out a list of you throw out a list of topics right there. And yet the NBA got very much addicted their commissioner after Stern Adam Silver to the idea of being the progressive league. And to be fair to them, I don't even know if they chose it so much as if you look back at a lot of the articles, it was almost like the media was shoving them in that direction. Football was having issues with all the concussions. There were a lot of think pieces on how football is on the way down. They you know, didn't let Colin Kaepernick kneel 
But look at the NBA. It's just this carnival of free expression. And that's the sport that's gaining. That's the sport that's rising. The Progressive League, that's part of its effective brand, I think was a New Republic article on it. And I think the NBA started to to lean into that a bit. But it's hard to keep that all together when you're a business at bottom. And a business with your main employees, not exactly on racial issues, yes, but on a lot of the other issues, not necessarily having that overlap with the progressive brand. Right. I mean, is it the kind of thing where the players are like actually just joking about this just overtly and saying out loud that they're just kind of playing to the crowd, that they're really just like fucking with us for their <laughs> own benefit? Yeah. Like how, 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 how much do they admit what they're doing? That's a great question because so few people look in the mirror and go, oh man, I'm a massive fraud. You know, it's more likely that people will start with the socially advantageous expression and then they will construct a new morality around that and drift in that direction. But I think it was fairly conscious. A lot of the white American players are pretty right wing and pretty conservative and we'll just consciously go the other way and joke about it behind the scenes. Um, and why that is, why... it's a, My rule for the white American players is always it's, it's going to be one way or the other way. You know, either they're super right-wing or they're super woke. Um, but sometimes it's the same guy, only one is publicly <laughs> the one way and one is publicly <laughs> the other way. So that's something that happens on occasion. But more often, it's... Um, Players doing things for clout on social media, not even performing it in interviews. And it's like, well, I tweeted that. That's not exactly where I'm at. There are a lot of players when Jason Collins uh, came out as the first NBA, uh, the first gay NBA player. There are a lot of players who said supportive, nice things. But when you talk to people behind the scenes, it's like, I don't like I'm a fucking team. You know? Yeah, you wonder, different, I wondered about that. Yeah, it was a different it was a different vibe. Okay. And so what, I know this is not the sport that you cover most often, but like Colin Kaepernick, for instance, like what, what's the origin story of his activism? Well, I don't know if I can go back that far, but his activism was certainly the origin of my thinking on some of these things of the, the bubble we're in, because I remember he does his protest against uh, police violence and he starts kneeling during the national anthem. And it's this big, it's this big hu uh, hullabaloo. And it was interesting to me because I saw Yahoo referencing a survey where the majority of Americans were against his doing this and didn't like it. But nobody in my social milieu had anything bad to say about it at all. And I thought that's, that's kind of curious. I mean, that's a big, that's a big disconnect. Regardless of how one feels about it, it's odd if the majority opinion and likely the majority opinion among sports fans is, is totally crowded out. And I hadn't heard any kind of negativity from anybody working in the mainstream sports press. And I remember we were driving back from, uh, from Reno. My wife and I were, and the tire just blew out. Something happened with the car. And we got... We need to get it towed in Sacramento. And uh, the affable guy running the tow truck, uh, you know, we, we ride up with him. Uh, he's getting, and he starts asking me questions because he asks what I do. I tell him, and he's just livid over the Kaepernick thing, just livid, like dripping 
with contempt over what Kaepernick is doing. And this is very Tom Friedman in the cab, but there's something to the whole <laughs> Tom Friedman in the cab thing because it was shocking to me at some level just because in my head there was this voice of, oh my God, you're not allowed to, you, you, you can't feel that way. That's not allowed. That's not, that's not something that's you know within the boundaries. But then I thought about it and I thought, man, I wonder how many people feel similarly and we effectively treat them like moral freaks. And if they're not the majority of sports fans, they're damn near it. And that is, to me, I think that's wrong. I don't like the approach that people in media often take. You don't have to agree with that opinion, but you at least should have some respect for it and try to steel man it. I think a lot of what was happening in sports media was just to reduce these people down to these base qualities of being racist and terrible as opposed to saying, look, you feel a certain way about the flag. You feel like it should have a certain amount of reverence. You don't like someone uh, drawing attention to themselves. And, you know, maybe I don't agree for whatever reason. Personally, I don't really care what people do during the national anthem at all. But I can try to steel man the alternate perspective. And that just was not happening at ESPN and at these other institutions as that was going on. So, I mean, we started this conversation by you saying that you, your world sort of exists outside of the sort of larger media world. And when we talk about, quote unquote, elite media and we talk about, you know, this kind of re- leaning very heavily to the left and being in a bubble, like you you were identifying that as sort of outside of your world. But you are also saying that sports journalists are this very kind of person. Is, is that a relatively new, is this a, a younger cohort? Yeah, your world breached the gates of my world, and it it started with Trump. I, I was around the Warriors during the kind of primaries and all of that, and nobody gave any kind of shit about any of that. I think it was just assumed Hillary was going to win, and nobody seemed to be all that focused on it. And then Trump wins, and everything changes. And Trump is feuding with NBA players. He's feuding with LeBron. He's feuding with Steph Curry. And all of a sudden, you see more of a political valence from sports writers. And sports writers, like so many in the broader media, they come from the cities, they come from the colleges, they are professional class people, and they get it in their heads that it's now part of their sacred duty to uh, kind of move the ball forward ideologically and push things in the right and good direction. So it became... It became more like your world, but in a way, I would say even more tiresome and monolithic because at least in the political journalism world, you just have a range of people. You know, maybe you don't have so much of an arrange, a range of opinions at the New York Times or the Washington Post, but you've got these other publications and there is this admission in political journalism that Republicans exist and conservatives exist and they have their own institutions and that exists to a certain degree. But in the sports media world, I think you don't really have that so much. And then there's this uh, maybe uh, the tragedy of the midwit where we're copying you guys and we're trying to mirror what we see the A students are doing because we're the B and the C students. And so I just found it all very tiresome. And it's still tiresome, by the way. I, I find it to be such a constipated conversation. And it, it, it is so mimetic. It's just this idea of, well, I like the good thing or I hate the bad thing. And there's not, you know, I could just throw out an example where uh, equal pay for the women's World Cup team uh, that they, that they uh, successfully got for themselves and they had a terrible showing in the tournament. And 
you know, it's just it's a slogan. Equal pay is a slogan. So when I see journalists celebrating that they achieved equal pay, I think to myself, well, there's a conversation to be had here of whether they deserved an equal share of the pay because they had won more games than the men's team won and they got better ratings. Uh, but the men's World Cup is way more popular. So that's a whole conversation. But then more broadly, what the fuck are we talking about? Women are not going to get paid equal to men in sports. Like, can we get real? Like, what, what do we, what are, this is like, nobody, nobody says obvious things. And when I say that, I mean, generally, I'm not talking about specific instances, but I think that this goes back to the incongruity where uh, sports media is almost at war with itself uh, or at war with just realities that cannot be changed because at some level at bottom, save for certain exceptions like the women's world cup and the uh, women's ncaa tournament which a lot of people watched it is a sale of masculinity maybe pathetically some might argue but there is a little bit of well testosterone is an illegal substance like the literal male hormone is a thing that gets you better at sports and there is something to how People are watching these things for a variety of reasons, but maleness is part of it. I mean, I'm, this is just top of my head. I'm just, you know, blathering. But I mean, these are all very interesting issues to me. And you just don't, you just don't really see it. You just see kind of drumbeat, same take, you know, there are I know, exceptions. And it's such a shame because it, it, this stuff is so fascinating. It's yes. like the best show in town talking about this stuff. I, I don't know why, how people can just leave it alone. It, it blows my mind. And once you're honest about it, you don't have to be dismissive completely. You can go, well, wait a second. Why is the women's NCAA tournament popular despite the intense maleness of sport being the main commodity? I mean, that's an interesting question, but then you would have to admit some very basic things that everybody <laughs> that everybody knows. But okay, like what? Reason, well, but, well, okay, but why? Why is it popular? I I don't know. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, no, I think you know they. I think tournaments that are single elimination are inherently more interesting. I think there's something about the institution of colleges that that transcend, kind of in the way that the nationhood transcends the typical sports uh, affiliation with cities and, but. To be honest, I, I'm not sure I could answer that question. It's just you're not really going to get that question answered, at least in an honest way. And that's just, you know, I'm just like flying by the seat of my pants. But and I'm, I'm expressing my frustration. I just feel like there are a million interesting cultural issues in sports. If you open yourself, if you open yourself up to not being a PR person for an ideology or a cause and you just didn't see a lot of discussion about it. Yeah, well, you've said that sports sells a rented form of masculinity to the masses, something like that. And then, and you say now it's going through the, this performance of fighting the patriarchy. I, I think it's very <laughs> yeah. succinctly put, I mean, there are all these just, yeah. I mean, there, this, this kind of you go girl, um, Nike kind of marketing, like selling something that has a very small, the, a very, very small percentage of sports audience is women. So again, like I keep coming back to what are these ad executives thinking mm. by continuing to push this? Are they just, are they trying to win like, like advertising awards? Like, is it, is, are they just trying to like score points and gain prestige within the field of advertising? Like sometimes I think it's as simple as that. Yes, I think so too. I think the, the incentives are misaligned and the social incentives, I think we're in an era We've been in an era in an era where the social incentives are more powerful than the financial incentives, and you see oh, that on Twitter yeah. all the time. 
you see people effectively destroy their careers as productive content makers because they're looking for the social incentives of what to tweet and what to mirror rather than putting out something that's differentiated and interesting and real. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that in a lot of institutions. But there is a financial gambit to be had, as I wrote about in, in my essay on the Nike advertising, which is, I think there's the undecided whale phenomenon. And, and that's the, the large cohort that you haven't really gotten. That starts to obsess you as a major corporation. For the NBA, it was China. It was, yeah, we've, you know, we're popular in the United States. It's where our money comes from. But if we could get into China oh my God, we'd be printing money. And similarly, Nike is the rare apparel company that's dominant with men. Two-thirds of their sales go to men. So I think at Nike, there is this feeling of, okay, but if we could get the, the sales to women on the level that we have with the men, there's always that embedded growth principle in these corporations. That is our bridge to the future. But the way that they tried to build that bridge was, was with really super cringe advertising that I don't <laughs> think appealed to uh, men or women. Yeah, um, anyone? And, I don't know who it appealed to. <laughs> I like, mean, you could... Like, <laughs> it appeals to women on Facebook, like a certain kind of live, love, laugh woman on Facebook, I think is the target audience there. Yeah, I, I wrote an essay about it. And my basic argument is that, you know, you can look down on advertising, but a lot of uh, the Nike ads were these really enduring cultural artifacts that were quite beautiful or stirring and were much loved by the people who enjoyed them. They were cultural touchstones. And I think when you bring up how cringe the ads are, the reflexive response is, well, you're just saying that because you're old and they're not making the ads about you anymore. Like that was sort of the response. And my thing was, come on, man, cut the shit. This is just bad. These aren't good. Nobody's going to be talking about these ads. Nobody's going to be talking about this in the future. I think it, there needs to be an admission sometimes that the ideologically uh, infected product is just not a good one. And so uh, that's what I was saying about Nike. But you know, the other side of that is Nike has such a strong position that it doesn't need to make good ads. So you yeah. know, something's that's the that's the whole other topic uh, that that it overlaps with. But anyway, I'm I'm rambling. No, I remember when those Nike ads came out, the Revolution ads. I guess it was in the '80s. Wyden and Kennedy, the ad yeah. agency out of Portland. I mean, that was a they, people were talking about an ad agency as if it was a movie studio. I, mean, I was a teenager then, and I was like very into film. I was very pretentious, and and I frankly, I was also really into advertising. My favorite columnist and in all of journalism, I think, well through college, was Leslie Savin, who had this media column in the Village Voice, and she would she was an ad critic, literally. So people really cared mm. about television ads and ad campaigns at that time, and there was just it was like a, a piece of art. I mean, it was it was really something. So yeah, anyway, just a little side note. Well, to what you're saying, yeah, and Weedon Kennedy was was amazing. And I'm glad that you gave that example. I didn't yeah, know that sorry, I mispronounced. I didn't know I mispronounced well, Weedon. Well, you might have. I think you, it is what, you, you know what? I think it you is Weedon. You said orthonagal. You, you, you don't pronounce anything right. I, th I actually think that you pronounce it correctly and I didn't. Um, okay. That's quite an... Hopefully, quite they'll, an uh, hopefully we'll hear from them. Yeah, what an indictment of my uh, pronunciation. <laughs> um, it, but anyway, uh, it's. I think the other thing that we're talking about is that there was levity to it too. I mean, yes. it wasn't just it was great art. There was It was funny. I mean, I think about 
one of the ads that's much loved among my generational cohort from Nike would not happen again. And but it but it's very funny. And it was uh, back in the day there was the home run chase and Mark McGuire and uh, Sammy Sosa were just you know roided up and hitting these monster home runs. And so the joke in the Nike ad uh, is a woman played by Heather Locklear and another woman are watching batting practice and ooing and eyeing as Mark McGuire is just, you know, rocketing these home runs. And the great pitchers of the Atlanta Braves, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, are resentful watching it. And so you go through this montage of them training to be great home run hitters. And, you know, finally they're in batting practice hitting home runs and Heather Locklear's there and she calls out to them and they fist bump. And then she asks them if they've, you know, have you guys seen Mark? And they, <laughs> they, re- they respond, you know, resentfully and, and whatnot. And the tagline is chicks dig the long ball. And that was this, <laughs> you know, it's like the, you wouldn't see yeah. that. Then that's a weird no. thing because it's like, <laughs> would that be about like, what is that discomfort about? Now I'm asking you because chicks, I get it. Chicks could be derogatory. I love you chicks. Know, I love that. I, I love that. Yeah, too. I do too. But you know, I, I get that, but it wouldn't even be ladies love the long ball. I feel like there's just no, ladies is insulting actually <laughs> women love, long, but there's like a no. discomfort. There's yeah. like a, to, to what you're saying, there's a discomfort with the bro you know, within these institutions that sell the product to the bro. And it seems like they just wish their customer was somebody else. They, this is the customer. No uh-huh. other customer is going to show up, but they want it. They want it to be somebody different, you know? God. It's, um, <laughs> you know, okay. So let's, can we talk about the Gillette ad for a second, actually? Oh um, yeah, that thing. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'm old enough that I remember Okay, so just in case people don't know, so Gillette, they cha- the slogan forever was the best a man can get, <laughs> meaning like the best razor you can get. I didn't interpret it any other way. And, and then they changed it to the best a man can be, and they had this whole Me Too era um, sort of slight rebranding, and there was, an, I guess, a Super Bowl ad, you know, just total, total men, kind of relitigation of... of of masculinity. I mean, it was a total cringe that ad. Yeah, was it not? I'm, I'm okay. remembering it was like these these men, these dads who are barbecuing and they're droning on. Boys will be boys when they should be interrupting. Oh, uh, right. Yes, yes. We're actually hearing them talk. It's not just a big jingle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I I can't remember if I wrote about this or I just talked about it. But you know, if you actually look back, there's um the original best a man can get Gillette ad from the 80s. It might be late 80s, might be mid, I don't know. But um, it's fascinating to watch because it's a montage sequence of men doing all these different things and they're all white. There's a couple notable things about the ad. They're (laughs) They're all white. They're a bunch of white square jaws is my memory. Yes. there's And they all look like JFK Jr., basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, But there's I think there's maybe like one black guy. But the women in the ad... And are all like they're wearing they're like business women. They're like wearing shoulder pads or they're just kind of, you know, they're they're equals. Like the men are trying to impress women who are their equals. Um, and there's one shot where this guy is like, you know, running towards his beloved and like they're being, you know, reunited at the at the train station or something like that. And she's like wearing a trench coat and she's got the big earrings, and you know, they're both they're masters of the universe. They're like a yuppie couple. And it's remarkable there's not one scantily clad woman in the ad 
not even close. There's one moment yeah. where these guys are kind of like looking at a girl on a bicycle or something, but she's just kind of normal, cute chick, you know? And so it's just the entire aesthetic of, you know, masculinity and femininity has become so exaggerated and it's such a cartoon version of its former self that it's, I think, I think really something has been lost. And I don't think people realize that the thing that we're supposedly fighting uh, in terms of like just rampant sexism, you know, through in, in media images is a pretty recent phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I took the image that's enduring to me from that ad was a father kind of preparing his son to be uh, to be married. And it's, you know, one of these one of these white chads, one of these square jaws and his father <laughs> is, uh, is is uh, I think he's in the suit and he's kind of adjusting the suit. And that kind of positivity, intergenerational, it's so banal, but in a way I look at it and I go, man, I don't even see that anymore. I don't, that's, that's part of real life, but it's not part of advertising. I feel, you know, maybe we should at least do another example of the sort of ads that, that we were talking about at Nike because I've, I've pulled it up, but uh, <laughs> like gender war has become part of the advertising to what you're saying. And for instance, the women's basketball team in the Olympics and Nike put out an ad for it and you have a, a pink haired uh, teenage girl incidentally black just you know given the give, given the profile setting the, the the whole scene of it and she says today i have a presentation on dynasties but i refuse to talk about the ancient history and drama that's just the patriarchy uh, <laughs> it's like <laughs> instead i'm going to talk about a dynasty that i actually look up to an all-woman dynasty Women of color, gay women, women who fight for social justice, women with a jump shot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember this ad. Like, it's like something from Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry. It, it is the really brilliant Saturday Night Live sketch where the ad people are trying to outcompete each other uh, with the Cheetos ad. If anybody want to look, yeah. uh, wants to look that up, uh, she goes, "A dynasty that makes your favorite men's basketball, football, and baseball team." look like amateurs and when she says that's just the patriarchy the camera pans to a bust of julius caesar it's just what is even oh, what is even happening here no. oh then she says a dynasty that makes alexander the great look like alexander the okay it's just all right that's actually funny it is kind of funny but it's also what is alexander the meh alexander you know hey he's mad he was a man you could I could have a sports talk argument about whether he led a successful life. He, his, his uh, wife and son, um, you know, did not carry the line forward. So, you know, that's a whole other conversation. It's very tragic and very sad. A guy could conquer the world and his son gets killed. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's just who asked for this? That's the question. Who asked for yeah. this? Who wants this? Who does this appeal to? I don't think, I think you could make an ad for the women's team in the Olympics that's positive and cool and isn't isn't part of this this war that only the most unhappy people in society have an investment in yeah yeah and it so you your question is who asked for this and my question has always been what are you getting out of this like <laughs> ladies what are you getting out of this um you know one of the things that i talk about here uh, but maybe even more so on my other podcast uh, with sarah haters like whether women are really controlling this culture. Like we often mm. ask, do women control cancel culture? 
Are they sort of calling the shots at a high enough level at these media organizations? Like, so I'm wondering, like with ESPN, for instance, I don't know what the what the sex ratio is there, but like, are there women in executive positions who are saying we have to do it this way, or are they just men who think that that's it would behoove them to say such things? Well, that's what's complicated about the conversation between the sexes is that sometimes one side asks for something and what they ask for isn't actually what they want. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that, that, that's something that you this see a lot. This is how people get a, me too by the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is, this is uh, you see that on a micro for level. for a great date. Yeah. <laughs> you see it on a micro level. You see it on a macro level. ESPN <laughs> is mostly run by men, uh, the dreaded white men. And I think, you know, in terms of ESPN, I... There, there's some journalists kind of freelancing and speaking for themselves. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening all at once. I mean, ESPN is its own complicated thing, and but if I, but there are some institutions that have really made a hard turn into this kind of broadcasting, and who they're being run by is an interesting question. I think about hockey, for instance. Hockey has really lurched into all this stuff, and I think part of what happens sometimes is that the voice of the organization is a social media person. Now, most social media workers are women, and it's a way for the uh, sports leagues and the, um, it's a way for the sports leagues and the sports teams to avoid a lawsuit and sort of bolster their ranks with non-male employees because men, you know, men no read good or whatever. Like they're worst <laughs> at <laughs> they're worst at social media. So um, you know, in the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, the majority of people with those jobs are women. And those jobs do not pay well. They're not great jobs. So you almost have to give credit to the women who take them on and then start nudging the voice of the institution towards causes that they find preferable. And I think sometimes what what happens is that, because I've seen it before, is that they will start Tweeting politically or arguing with you know fans and um and and what have you, and I think some of the people running the institutions think it would be just too much trouble to really rein that in, and so that <laughs> ends up becoming the voice of what's happening. Even though they've employed Even, these people to, to yeah, be the like, face the, of their organization, yeah, they're paying somebody forty k to be the social media voice of the institution. And there is power in that if you want to commandeer it. So in a way, it's, look, true believers, you got to give them credit. They, they really believe and they're willing to risk, they're willing to risk uh, burning bridges or getting fired. And they see themselves as righteous and they think it's important to you know, yell at hockey fans that they're homophobic oh or you know, about trans, uh, trans rights or, or what have you. I mean, the Baltimore Orioles game, it was just a bunch of throughout the game instead of tweeting about the Orioles and how many runs or here are the highlights. It was, you know, sta- grim stats and facts about LGBT, LGBT. I can't even, you know, the whole thing, uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever the run of Wait, letters this is, is what they were doing. The, the person yeah. who was tweeting like on behalf of the Orioles during the game that they, they yeah, were it talking about the that. sharks. It happened with the Sharks too. Like they they have a day usually during Pride Month where it's we're gonna tweet about all these facts about how many trans women are killed. And again, it's the who asked for this. <laughs> but I think there's an aspect there of true believers uh, coming out of the colleges, getting paid 40k 
who see their social value as moving the culture in the proper direction and sort of answer your question, at least in those institutions, it doesn't seem to be coming from the top, from the men running the institutions, but they're terrified of reining in their younger female employees. Yeah, that's happening at every news organization and probably every workplace to some extent. Is this hurting the sports world? It's a good question. I think sports are becoming less popular, but they're becoming less popular for a variety of reasons. Uh, Young people, ironically, the cohort that is most uh, targeted with political ideological messaging seem to be very disinterested in sports. And uh, there's a recent survey that Generation Alpha, uh, the incoming teenage generation, only 15%. Wait, that's what they're called? Oh my gosh, you heard it here well, first. Did, was this just decided like this, yesterday that I didn't see the Yeah, it news? was uh, <laughs> it was just decided. There's a there, there's a committee. It's actually decided at the UN oddly enough. It's the only thing we get done. There's <laughs> like a, a Davos. So was it, wait, so like uh, generation alpha is the one after Gen Z then? Yeah. They're starting over the alphabet. I get. It. Okay. And how yeah, old are they? I, it's just the incoming cohort of teenagers, and I don't know what the range is. I could pull up the article because I wrote about it with hockey, because there is this inherent mystery. There is this inherent mystery to it as to why is this happening? What's going on? And I was trying to answer that question with hockey, and I was saying that part of what's happening is the thing I just mentioned of the social media worker commandeering the, uh, the conch. But I think there's this other aspect where young people are giving up on sports, and that really freaks out the people who make their money off sports. And so they're desperately trying to get that undecided whale uh, with this sort of messaging. And I don't think it works. I don't think it's what appeals to young people. And I actually think, you know, this is a radical opinion, but I think most of the people who watch sports are men and (laughs) that's not going to change. Okay, I'm bleeping that out, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's a crazy thing. Um, But uh, yeah, Um, but is it hurting the popularity of sports? I think so, but the sports do have their own monopolies in a way. So you can't just turn to a different NFL football, right? So I think that there have been people, especially people quiet quit during the bubble uh, for basketball and, you know, during the, uh, the pandemic, I think that they felt alienated. But I think a lot of them are coming back. And I think that we're... We're seeing something of a normalization happening and sports, there's a little bit less ideology and things are a little bit less hot and heavy uh, with Biden as the president. But I do think that there was some brand damage and distancing there of people going, man, this is not this is not for me. This doesn't feel like home anymore. And that certainly happens. And the weirdest thing to me is how in denial of it media people are. It's this strange thing of America is shot through with racism and sexism, but there's absolutely no way, zero chance that progressive messaging infused into the big cultural products will alienate any, any, anybody. Like, like, I don't well, understand and if that. it does it alienate them, then, then we, we want them to be alienated. I mean, well, I think that's that, what it is. Yes. All the better. Good riddance. It's the 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 celebration parallax. It's the um, it's not happening, and it's good that it's happening. But <laughs> right, right. there's this deep need among the journalistic class to be both the vanguard and the mainstream, and it doesn't line up. It it doesn't add up. It it, it can't hold together. Either you are radical and really pushing the boundaries of the culture and freaking out the squares, 
or you're making all the squares happy. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And yet there's this odd need. And I don't think it's just the journalistic set. I think it's a lot of people. I think people on the right certainly want to have the silent majority on their side. But there's this weird, there's this weird need to be both the underdog and the overdog all at once. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep you um, a little bit over time for uh, some bonus, and we're going to talk about uh, how you feel about being the age that you are, but also about your about your Substack. Um, I want to talk about All Hail the Model, which is a, a an essay that you wrote on your Substack a few months ago that completely stressed me out, and um, I think I think really uh, just captures the the kind of kind of cognitive metabolism. I just came up with that phrase right now between your generation and and mine. So. Uh, become a paying subscriber if you want to hear that part. But in the meantime, I guess I just want to wrap this portion up by asking if you think things are changing. I mean, a second ago, it sounds like maybe you do. I mean, I know that you know when you when you started your Substack uh, a few years ago, you were talking a lot about you know back channel discussions versus you know the conversations that are happening in, in public, and and you know people were very very much you know people like you and me, people like us mm-hmm. were really, really hung up on this stuff and and worried about it and thinking about it all the time. Do you think that it's it's kind of loosening up at all? I think so. I think, you know, this is a, an argument I have with some people in this space, but I actually think that Elon taking over Twitter has been good to that end. He's made it way more user-unfriendly and made a ton of errors and I think should be criticized for being so glib about this thing that has a lot of power it, it reminds me of in jurassic park when jeff goldblum is scolding uh scolding them about how uh, you've got the most awesome power uh genetics is the most awesome power on earth and you wield it like a kid who's found his dad's gun i think that there is something to that with the way elon handles twitter but it, it's also made it less of an ideological monolith and there are fewer of those mob mentality moments where there's something in the news, some graphic horrific thing, and you just know it's not only going to be a thing, but it's going to be a thing at your workplace that's talked about. They sent us home at The Athletic when there was the shooting in Atlanta of the massage parlor, and it was assumed to be racial. And I love oh, wait, The they Athletic. They sent you, wanna... you home? Why? Well, they they thought I they thought I did it. No, I no, they, they, oh, yeah, they, they just sent no, you. No, yeah. no, no, they sent all of us home. They said it was you know it's like this horrible thing has happened, so we're shutting down for the day. That was that era of Twitter where I think people forget there were just more hysterias, and I think with those hysterias, it's it's more difficult to um to just have a sensible conversation. Wait, I don't, I'm sorry. I got to go back to this. Why are they sending you home? Because it's so traumatic and you need to process it or because you were somehow in danger? Like it's not 9-11. I mean. Not danger, not danger. Okay, just you needed to process it. Like, yeah, like how could we even talk about sports on a day like today? And this sounds absurd in retrospect, but in the moment on that day when everybody thought it was a racial shooting, that's what was going on on Twitter all the time. And especially during COVID was, we have this discrete horrific event somewhere that maps on to the sorts of issues that liberal people are animated by and think are the root of all uh, befelling society. And uh, is that a word, befelling? Uh, anyway, <laughs> but like, and, and so therefore we're going to freak out about it um, on a, orders of magnitude beyond what we probably should. And, I think that was happening a lot and I think it freaked people out and people would get fired and be worried about getting fired for saying the wrong thing. Yeah. I think there are there are fewer of those going on. 
but the conversation is still so constipated. It, it, it's a lot of back channels still. And I just think, sadly, there's not trust that if you're reasonable, you will be treated reasonably. And I find that to be really sad. And I think that's yeah. a, it, a really negative outcome. Yeah. And I have to say, as recently as 2014, I really felt like if I said something reasonable or subtle, um, yeah. that it would be taken. I mean, I actually, I published yes. a book called the, Un- the unspeakable. I mean, the, the book, yeah. my book, the unspeakable was came out in 2014. And I remember, uh, having the sense like, okay, wow, this is being well-received. There are essays in this book that are like, you know, asking the reader to operate on a fairly sophisticated level. And it, and it worked like it was, people yeah. got it. Like it got, it got positive reviews. And I am um, by the end of, well, let's see that, but within six months, I did not feel that way anymore. Like I yeah, literally yeah, got not, out from under fa- the at the last minute. Fast forward to you under a blanket watching John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry talk. Yeah, exactly. Like you're yes. behind, you, you know, like you're behind the iron. Well. Yeah. Like you're behind <laughs> right. the iron curtain listening to some radio you're not allowed to listen to. Yeah. I mean, Roxanne Gay reviewed my book, The Unspeakable, and gave it a positive review. Huh. In the New wow. York Times. Can you believe that? It's the past was so the very recent past was so different. It just in a second it changed. And I remember having a conversation with uh, somebody else in the literary world, and I said, "You know, Roxane Gay is going to be a big deal." Like I, I'm, I'm some, and this was before even even this, you know. And mm. and and I said, "You know, watch out because there's something weird happening here. The discourse on, you know, that's coming out of Tumblr and the way Jezebel is changing, the way Gawker is changing, and Roxane Gay has a lot to do with this." And this person was like, "Nah, she's not. She's going to be a flash in the pan." No, you're wrong. Mm. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, you saw the yeah. future, but not the entirety of the future, I think. No, <laughs> just com- completely, completely focused on Roxanne Gay. Um, anyway, all right. Well, Ethan, where can we find you? Your your Substack is House of Strauss. Is there anything else we need to know about you and where to find you? I think that's about the size of it. Uh, House of Strauss, uh, about to be year two in the books on yeah. August 23rd. So I'm delighted to do it. I, I'm so grateful for the people who subscribe and, and read. I feel like it it saved my life in some capacities. And the most recent interview up there at the time of this conversation is with Nate Silver, and he was very mm. candid, and I would recommend it. Oh, nice. Okay. I want to hear about that. All right. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. This has been a like a therapy session for me. So I appreciate getting Okay, I'll send you a bill in that case. I don't <laughs> okay, take I'll pay. I'll pay it. It's worth it. Okay. That was my conversation with sports journalist Ethan Strauss. You can find him on his Substack, House of Strauss. To hear the bonus portion of this conversation, become a paying subscriber at my Substack, the official Substack of this podcast, megandalm.substack.com. Becoming a paying subscriber gets you lots of perks. There is bonus content almost every single week. You can also participate in comments. You can read my writing. There are all sorts of reasons to become a supporting member. So please do consider it. It means a lot to me. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.